0: The Apostle Paul had a deep and loving, somewhat re- rocky relationship with the church that he started in Corinth. The book of Acts tells us that it was on his second missionary journey out of Antioch that he went to that city and he began to preach the gospel there. And there were Jewish leaders in the city who became very agitated by his proclamation of that gospel. And so he went to the Gentiles and began to preach to the Gentiles and many of them came to faith in Christ and that caused the Jewish leaders to be even more upset with him. They tried to get him in trouble with governmental authorities and even became violent at points against those who were following Christ because of Paul's testimony. Paul stayed in Corinth for 18 months because the Lord encouraged him not to be despondent and leave. The Lord did that by giving him a vision in which he said, I have many people in this city. In other words, he said, there are people here that I have chosen to be saved and you are here for the purpose of bringing the gospel message to them so that they will be saved. So for their sake, Paul stayed these 18 months, preached, saw people converted, united them into a church and helped that church to make a good start. Yet after he left Corinth, Some false teachers came from Jerusalem and began to disrupt the fellowship. They came claiming to be apostles, though they themselves were not true apostles, and began to try to undermine the influence of the apostle Paul among the Corinthians. They made accusations against him. They questioned his authority as an apostle. The church became deeply divided as a result of this and they began to tolerate all kinds of sins and to lose respect for Paul and for the message that he had preached to them. So Paul made a quick trip back to Corinth when he was in Ephesus in order to address some of these difficulties. He tells us about this very briefly in 2 Corinthians chapter 2, 1 when he refers to the painful visit that he made after that painful visit where he confronted their sin spoke directly about difficulties in their church and yet the church didn't respond well Paul wrote a letter to them. A letter that he describes again in 2 Corinthians chapter 2 as having been written out of much affliction and with anguish of heart and many tears. And we don't have that letter in our Bibles. In fact we don't have two of the at least four letters that Paul wrote to the Corinthians in our Bibles. But what we do have is First Corinthians, which was the second letter that he wrote, and Second Corinthians, which is the fourth letter that we know he wrote. These two letters give us insight into the relationship that Paul had with the church and into the nature of his ministry as an apostle to that church. And what they reveal to us is that Paul was mistreated by that congregation. Many in that congregation were influenced by these false teachers. And they began to lose their respect for him and for the message he preached. And so in 2 Corinthians, what we have is the most personal letter that Paul writes that is recorded for us in the New Testament. In 2 Corinthians, Paul bears his soul to this congregation as he fights against all the havoc That has been wreaked among them by these false teachers. Time and again in 2 Corinthians. Paul demonstrates his deep love for the church. And he shows us the nature of that love. What does real love do? Well it rejoices in the truth. It's willing to confront sin. It's willing to rebuke sin. So that the people who are loved can be genuinely helped. To see how to trust Christ more honestly and sincerely. And find greater joy and their own welfare in him. In this letter of 2 Corinthians. Paul teaches us valuable lessons about the way of Christ. That is how followers of Jesus Christ. Should actually live day by day. How we should understand our lives as Christians. And what it means to live as Christians in a fallen world. As we've seen time and again through our study of 2 Corinthians. Paul makes in this letter that the Christian life is to be lived by the power of the gospel that God's power through the gospel of Jesus is actually perfected in our weakness it comes to us in our frailties all that Jesus is all that he has done gives power and hope to those who trust in him to live the way that God calls us to live day by day As we live by faith in Jesus Christ, we experience more and more of His grace and the blessings of salvation that He's provided for us in Him. When we trust in Christ, we turn away from sin and we look to Him as the one who reconciles us to God and we put our hope in Him, our confidence in Him and we seek to honor Him by obeying His commandments knowing that as we live according to His will, God receives glory and great good and joy comes to us even when you feel weak and helpless God's power still works in you as his child in fact the more you trust Christ the more you experience his power and the weaker that you know yourself to be the more you will trust Christ the more dependent you will feel yourself. You will lean more heavily upon him. And that faith is the instrument whereby God pours out his power and grace in our lives. So the weaker you are, the more dependent you become, the greater your faith, the more access then God's power has to be poured out into your lives. This is why Paul says what he does very paradoxically in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 10. When I'm weak, then I'm strong. When I feel myself weak and not able to do what God's called me to do, it's at that moment because of my dependence upon Christ, I know real strength. Not personal strength, but strength that comes from above. Well, today we come to the last chapter in 2 Corinthians in our study through this book. This is where Paul wraps up everything that he's written thus far with final warnings, exhortations, and encouragements. These are the final words of this very pointed, personal letter to a very troubled church. And as we read them, we should look for ways that they apply to us because they apply to all churches. Every church of Jesus Christ needs to hear what Paul is saying and this church needs to hear what he says to the church at Corinth in the first century. Like that church, we need to discover more of the gospel's power in our own weakness. And we will do that as we heed apostolic warnings, obey apostolic instructions and exhortations, and cherish apostolic encouragements. Our text is 2 Corinthians chapter 13. 2 Corinthians 13. We're going to read the whole chapter together. If you're using one of the Bibles that's provided for you, it's found on page 970-971. I encourage you to open a copy of God's Word and follow along as I read because we're just going to work our way through these verses to hear what it is that God by His Word and Spirit is saying to us today. So hear the Word of God from 2 Corinthians chapter 13. This is the third time I'm coming to you. Every charge must be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. I warned those who sinned before and all the others and I warn them now while absent As I did when present on my second visit, that if I come again, I will not spare them. Since you yourself seek proof that Christ is speaking in me. He is not weak in dealing with you, but is powerful among you. For he was crucified in weakness, but lives by the power of God. For we also are weak in him. But in dealing with you, we will live with him by the power of God. Examine yourselves to see whether you're in the faith. Test yourselves, or do you not realize this about yourselves, that Jesus Christ is in you, unless indeed you fail to meet the test. I hope you will find out that we have not failed to meet the test, but we pray to God that you may, do, you may not do wrong, not that we may appear to have met the test, but that you may do what is right, though we may seem to have failed. For we cannot do anything against the truth, but only for the truth. For we are glad when we are weak and you are strong. Your restoration is what we pray for. For this reason, I write these things while I am away from you, that when I come, I may not have to be severe in my use of the authority that the Lord has given me for building up and not for tearing down. Finally, brothers, rejoice. Aim for restoration. Comfort one another. Agree with one another. Live in peace. And the God of love and peace will be with you. Greet one another with a holy kiss. All the saints greet you. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Every Christian and every church should heed the warnings, obey the exhortations, and cherish the encouragements that come to us by apostolic authority we see all of these forms of communication in this last chapter Paul warns the church as he closes out his letter in the first four verses and then again in verse 10 basically he is saying to them the one who persists in sin will be justly disciplined for that sin he, he mentions his next visit, his third visit, what will be his third visit when he returns to them in verse 1. And he warns them in light of his anticipation of being with them the very same warning that he had given to them previously and now wants to underscore again. He says this in verse 2 to those who sinned before and all the others. He warns them now as he did when present on his second visit. The substance of the warning is found in verse 2. He says, I will not spare them. I want you to be alert to this. You who are going on in sin, when I show up, if you've not repented, I will not spare you. If they they do not repent, he's going to exercise apostolic authority to have them disciplined. Now he had already done this in 1 Corinthians chapter 5 he written to them very specifically that under his authority as an apostle of Jesus Christ though he was not with them present present with them physically he was with them spiritually he tells them to deliver an incestuous church member over to the devil he is exercising apostolic authority in the church telling them that they must discipline this man who refused to repent of his wicked public sin Paul, as an apostle, had authority to do this from Jesus Christ. We see him doing this in and of himself, by himself, without a church in 1 Timothy 2, verse 20, with Hymenaeus and Alexander, two men who had departed from the faith. And so Paul describes what he did. He said, I handed them over to Satan that they might learn not to blaspheme. Now, it's very common today for people to not think of discipline as being a part of the Christian life certainly not part of a church's life and yet the scripture is very clear on this point a Christian is someone who repents of sin and trusts Jesus Christ as Lord and that repentance and trust is not just a one-time thing that's done at the threshold of entering into the Christian life but rather it begins with initial repentance and faith and it continues with a life of ongoing repentance and faith. So every Christian can be called a believer and a repenter. We live in repentance and faith. A healthy Christian is not content to go on with patterns of sin. And when a Christian falls into patterns of sin and is unwilling to repent, the medicine of corrective discipline is what God prescribes in order to restore him. The final step of that discipline is removing the impenitent person from the church and handing him over to Satan according to 1 Corinthians 5 in hopes that he will come to his senses turn from his sin and return to the Lord. So the apostolic warning is this. The one who continues in sin will be justly disciplined for that sin. Paul will see to it that this is done when he returns to Corinth. And he will make sure that it is done justly, appropriately. Not as some kind of personal vendetta. Not because this guy is just a problem and he's hard to get along with. No, it will be done according to the word of God. That's why he quotes from the law of God, Deuteronomy 19.15 and verse 1 when he says, every charge must be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. Here he's echoing the words of Jesus as well in Matthew 18 where he instructs us how church is to carry out the final steps of discipline. Paul is relating to the church this way because he has patterned his life after the crucified risen Christ. This is the way of Christ. Because Paul had lived after the pattern of Christ his critics had taken opportunity to criticize him and fault him for being weak and unimpressive Paul would be gentle among the Corinthians and he would try very humbly to plead with them to restore them when he was with them and they didn't heed that and so he had to write the letter that he wrote to address them very severely about their sin he had to write what he did in 1 Corinthians 5 tell them to expel the immoral brother who refuses to repent and so his critics said you see Paul's a weakling when he's here in person. Oh, his letters are tough. But yeah, in reality, he's not much of a man, much less much of an apostle. Well, Paul is pointing out that this is the way of Christ by reminding them of Christ's power through weakness. You see this in verse 4? It says, Jesus was crucified in weakness but lives By the power of God. And he makes that statement after saying in verse 3. That Jesus was never weak in dealing with you. But is powerful among you. you. What's his point? His point is that Jesus on the cross looked very weak. Looked out of control. Looked like a failure. But Jesus chose to be crucified. Jesus willingly humbled himself. Not because he was inherently weak. Not because he had no power. But because such weakness was the only way to secure the salvation of God's people. In the same way, Paul says, I was gentle among you. Not because he didn't have any power as an apostle. But because he was following the pattern of his Lord and Master, Jesus Christ. Dealing humbly with his church. These false teachers and those who followed them mistook Paul's gentleness and meekness for weakness. And by making this mistake, they show that they didn't even understand the way of Christ. When Jesus was arrested and about to be crucified, do you remember what he said to his disciples with him? He said, put your swords away. Don't you know I could call legions of angels right now? And completely changed this scenario. He had all authority right then. To do anything necessary to overturn his opponents. But he chose to lay down his life. And he calls his followers. To choose to lay down our lives as well. To live humbly. Gently. With self-denying devotion to him. As we deal with one another. When Paul lived that way among the Corinthians. These false apostles accused him of being a weakling. Having no authority. Why would you trust a man like that? Look at him. He's unimpressive. Paul addresses their misunderstanding by warning the Corinthians that if they persist in sin, he will deal with them severely according to the authority he has as an apostle of Jesus. This is why he writes what he does in verse 10. For this reason I write these things while I'm away from you that when I come I may not have to be severe in my use of the authority that the Lord has given me for building up and not for tearing down. He says I'm I'm telling you this now in hopes that this will land upon you in a way that you will see your sin and repent so that when I get there I won't have to deal with you in your unrepentant state. I would much rather come to you in gentleness and meekness and not have to wield the authority that Christ has placed upon me as an apostle in severity. The warning that Paul gives is itself an act of kindness. As really all warnings that we have in the scripture are. That's why we must heed them. I wonder, brothers and sisters, do you take the warnings in the Bible seriously? Or do you just tend to skate over them as if they don't really apply to you? We are called upon to heed them. They come to us with the authority of Jesus Christ. The very same authority that Paul as an apostle was speaking with when he penned this letter. When the Bible warns us to repent of sin. When it warns us of not being deceived. When it warns us not to let our hearts grow hard and indifferent to the things of God. God intends for us to hear and to heed. To recognize that He's speaking to us in kindness, in gentleness, to call us back to a right path so that we will not subject ourselves to a necessary, more severe dealing with our sin. Along with heeding warnings as believers, as a church, we're also called to obey exhortations that are given to us. And Paul gives many exhortations in these closing words. In verse 5 he admonishes and exhorts us to examine ourselves. Do you see this? He says examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. The, the Corinthians had been quick to examine Paul. They'd been quick to put him on trial and to make accusations against him. He's now saying examine yourselves. Test yourselves in fact the word yourselves there is placed in a position to give emphasis to it so it calls attention to the point he is making you need to examine yourself what is the question that he intends for them to ask and to answer here's the question it should be put to each one of us today do i genuinely know the lord jesus christ Do I have a saving relationship with Jesus Christ? He says, test yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. That's what his point is. If they're genuine Christians, he says in verse 5, then Jesus Christ will be in you. You'll discover, yes, indeed, it's true, Christ is in me. Self-examination is an important Christian responsibility. Socrates reportedly said that the unexamined life is not worth living. As Christians, we could say that the unexamined Christian life is in danger of being lived falsely with self-deception. You do realize, don't you, that there is such a thing as false faith? You realize the Bible teaches that there are those who take the name of Jesus upon their lives, who come to gatherings like this, Who sing the kind of songs we've sung. Who listen to the kind of teaching you're hearing now. And yet who do not know the Lord. Listen to the way Jesus says it. In Matthew chapter 7. Near the end of the Sermon on the Mount. He says not everyone who says to me Lord, Lord. Will enter the kingdom of heaven. But the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. I think those are the most frightening words in the Bible. Jesus Christ describes a scenario on the day of judgment when Religious people. People who say, Lord, Lord. Will come to him. And begin to talk about all their religious activities. Casting out demons. Working miracles. Preaching. And they hear the Lord say, Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. I never knew you. It's sobering. It's frightening. What can you do to guard against being in that number of people on that day? Examine yourself to see if you are in the faith. Obey this exhortation. Test yourself. What Paul is exhorting us to do is to set up a court in our own hearts. Well, what are we to put on trial? in that courtroom our whole lives what's to be the object of our investigation to see if indeed there is a right relationship between us and Jesus Christ the one who shed his blood for sinners to see if I am trusting him if I'm depending upon him to see if my life though not perfectly intentionally reflects genuine dependence upon Christ plus nothing else and genuine turning away from sin because I'm not satisfied with sin that is in my life. Where faith and repentance are being strengthened, there will be an ongoing renunciation of sin. We will not sign peace treaties with our sin, saying, well, I'm good enough. We won't find comfort in our sin. Rather, we will continue to seek to find comfort and joy in Jesus Christ and all that He's done for us. There will be genuine love and gratitude in our hearts for Christ and His work on the cross for us. And there will be a determination in our lives to live in humble obedience to His commandments. We won't regard His commandments as burdensome. We'll see them as the path of life. And we'll want to express our love for Him by obeying Him. That's what Paul calls upon each one of us to do. Examine yourself. See if you're in the faith. He says, because he believes, they will recognize Christ is in them. Look at verse 5. Do you not realize that this about yourselves, that Jesus Christ is in you, unless indeed you fail to meet the test? To be in the faith is to be indwelt, by Jesus Christ is to have Christ in our lives if they're not in the faith if they fail to meet the test then Christ is not in them but Paul anticipates that they will pass the test But what do you do if you don't pass the test I mean what if right now you're thinking I really do love my sin and and I'm satisfied with my sin and I don't mind being religious but I'm not sure I want to be wholeheartedly devoted to Jesus Christ as Lord If that's honestly your assessment, praise God. Praise God. I mean that sincerely. Why? Because if you become convinced and aware that you are not a true Christian, that is the next best thing to being a true Christian. Because if you realize it and God's showing you through His Word today that whatever your experience has been, it's not been a saving relationship with Christ. Christ is not your Lord. Then today... Here, under his word, he calls you to trust him. Come to him. You don't have to jump through hoops. You you don't have to go through rituals. You, in your heart, need to bow to Jesus Christ as Lord and turn your life over to him now and simply call upon him and say, Lord Jesus, have mercy upon me. I am a sinner. I've turned away from you. I need forgiveness. I need grace. I need your life, your death, to represent me to God You call upon Christ from your heart. You believe in him. He'll accept you. He'll have you. He'll save you. And you will begin to discover. The reality of a life. Of faith. In Jesus Christ. Well Paul was very hopeful that. These Corinthians. At least most of them. Would discover that indeed. Christ is in them. Now he's dealing with very wisely with them in the way that he instructs them here because even though they have faltered at very significant points with these false teachers letting them lead them astray if Christ is in them then they should seriously think about the way of Christ if Christ lives in me should not I consider the meekness and gentleness of Christ displayed on the cross Shouldn't I also consider his power displayed in the resurrection? And if I'm seeing that about Jesus, then shouldn't I see Paul's gentleness and meekness when he was with us and yet his threat of exercising apostolic authority in a severe way as just modeling Christ, following Christ? Paul makes the point even more plainly in verse 6. When he calls upon them to recognize the implications for his ministry as an apostle. He says I hope that you will find out that we have not failed the test. Here's this point. If they examine themselves they say yes I'm in the faith Christ is in me. The question is well how did you get there? How did you learn about this Christ? This Paul. Paul's the one who came and preached the gospel to them. If they've grown in grace, how did they grow? The apostle Paul. He's the one who instructed them in the things of Jesus Christ. Paul was the instrument that nurtured their growth. In other words, Paul is saying, if these Corinthians pass the test of self-examination, then Paul will pass the test in their minds of being an authentic apostle of Jesus because he's the one who came and preached Jesus to them. It's a very shrewd way of helping them stop and consider the lunacy of these false teachers who would have them discount Paul's ministry and authority in their lives. Well, he follows this admonition to examine themselves later in this text now with five short exhortations in verses 11 and 12. Uh, These exhortations, most of them are actually just one word in the language that Paul originally wrote this letter in. Verse 11, he says, rejoice, rejoice. Well, he knew there would be real joy as they examine themselves, discover that indeed they are in Christ, and blinds fall blinders fall off their minds in the areas that they have been blinded to see things more clearly. But he also knew that when they were confronted with their sin, when they realized how they had gotten off the path, there's going to be sorrow because every Christian grieves over his sin. And so he's reminding them look, when you are made aware of your sin, rejoice. Because that's God at work. That's God on a rescue mission. Whenever you have your sin pointed out to you, and in your mind's eye, it opens up and you say, I can't believe I've been living this way. can't believe I've been talking like this. I can't believe I've been thinking like this. And you feel like a fool. You feel so stupid. You feel so sinful. Paul says rejoice. Because God's at work. The reason that you're seeing those things is because God's at work. So yes, grieve over your sin, but rejoice that God is dealing with you as a loving father and helping you to see your sin and turn from it. He goes on, he says, aim for restoration. In other words, make it your intent to make things right. That was Paul's concern for the church all along. It was the burden of his prayers, as he says in verse 9. He wants them to be restored to Christ where they have walked away from the path of Christ. He wants them to be restored to each other where there's been division in the church that's caused them to turn against each other. He wants them to be restored to himself. So he says, make it your aim to be restored. Aim for restoration. Comfort one another. He knows that any church conflict will result in deep hurts. Hurts on the part of those who are right and hurts on the part of those who are wrong. Paul himself had been deeply hurt by this conflict in the church at Corinth. He needed to be comforted. So he tells us in 2 Corinthians 7, verse 6, God did comfort him with his brokenheartedness, his discomfort over what's going on in Corinth. God comforted him by sending Titus to him, and they were reunited. And when Titus brought news of good things that were stirring in Corinth, Paul was comforted by this. And so he says, comfort one another. Brothers and sisters, if we're going to comfort one another, what will that require of us? Won't it require that we deal gently with each other? Won't it require that we're humble with each other? Won't it require that we care enough to engage one another? Maybe in ways that you might find yourself being discomforted. We're going to need to cultivate patience with each other. Tenderheartedness with each other. Long-suffering with each other. Why? So that we might comfort one another. He says agree with one another. Have one mind among yourselves. Every church needs this. Every church needs to be united with a clear understanding. Understanding. And the way to do that is to be clear in confessing what it is that we do believe concerning the authority and sufficiency of God's Word and what that Word actually teaches. So our agreement is in the Lord on the basis of His Word. And to live at peace, he says. Refuse to disrupt the congregation for any self-seeking reasons. Seek to promote the peace of the church when we live this way Paul says the God of love and peace will be with you it's interesting of all the different ways that he could have described God that would be true he highlights love and peace the God of love and peace two characteristics that the Corinthians most specifically and obviously need they need to love each other the way we've been loved by Christ they need to pursue peace with one another as the God of all peace has established peace between us and him through Christ so the God who grants such blessings will draw near to them and empower them to live in love and peace with each other brothers and sisters these are admonitions every church needs to obey including this church Do you make it your goal to rejoice? Do you see rejoicing not as something that's incidental or just left to those sanguine personalities? But it is that which God calls each one of us to do, not as some kind of drudgery duty, but as an expression of our worship and our understanding and our delight in what God's done for us in Christ. If we're thinking rightly as Christians, On our worst day. We have more to rejoice over. Than Bill Gates has to rejoice over. In his best day. We have a savior. We have a God who's loved us. Who's promised to move heaven and earth itself. To get us safely home with him. Who will not let one thing come into our lives. That has not first been filtered through his loving hands. For our good. That's worth rejoicing over. Do we. Aim to restore relationships to this church. Do you have strange relationships here? If so, what do you do? Are you just trying to avoid the person? Hoping maybe that things will calm down? No. Aim at restoration. We proclaim a God who reconciles sinners to himself. Our message is a message of reconciliation. Our lives ought to reflect that. We ought to aim for it. Do you seek to comfort? other people what have you done in the last week to comfort someone what could you do this week to comfort a brother or a sister who needs comforting do you seek to agree with brothers and sisters in truth to let the truth be the determination of our confession do you seek to encourage and help one another to live in peace these are admonitions given to us by the Apostle Paul as he writes to this church closing out his letter to them and we should take them to heart. As Paul anticipates them living this way he says in verse 12 greet one another with a holy kiss. Now when I was a teenager I used to say man yes you know, this, is, I, this is my verse right? You know? Wrong thinking, wrong thinking. He's not talking about anything sexual anything sensual. This was a common custom in that culture. And so the understanding was this is a way you warmly greet someone. And Paul's saying, yes, we need to take that and sanctify that so that we greet each other as brothers and sisters in the same family. It's a fraternal kind of greeting. It would be similar to what some cultures do in, in hugging appropriately or shaking hands or just warmly acknowledging one another because we are in the same family and we have God as our Father. So we are to heed warnings and obey admonitions. And then finally, as a church, in this passage we see we are to cherish encouragements that are given to us. There are three specific ways that Paul encourages the Corinthians as he closes out this letter. The first is with his prayer. We see this in verses 7 through 9. He prays that they will do what is right and do no wrong. This is my prayer, that you will do what is right and not do any wrong. His motive for praying that isn't selfish. He says, not so that we may appear to have met the test. He's not concerned about how he looks to his critics. He knows that if they respond well to this letter, they could put him back in the same position that caused his critics to try to undermine his authority in the first place. But he goes on to say, I'm willing to look like a failure to my critics. He says in verse 7, though we may seem to have failed. What's he talking about here? He's saying, if you respond well, you repent over the sin that I'm calling to your attention, you are restored to one another and to me, then when I show up, I will be meek and gentle with you again. I will not have to exercise apostolic authority in a severe way with you And then these critics who say, oh, yeah, he's tough in his letters, but when he's here, he's just like a pussycat, then they'll have opportunity again to criticize me. He says, it doesn't matter to me. Even if we seem to have failed in their eyes, that does not matter to me. He's committed to serving for the truth, not against it. We can't do anything, he says, against the truth. In other words, that's my resolve. And so when humility, repentance is being displayed, I'm not going to come in with severe authority. And that's the way of Christ. And even if that sets me up to be criticized, so be it. He's glad when he's weak. And they are strong, he says. Because then he'll have no need to exercise authority in a stern way. Because they're turning from sin as strong christians he prays for their restoration we see that in verse 9 the very thing he tells them to aim for in verse 11 he specifically asks the lord to empower them to successfully hit what they're aiming for in the church that they would have genuine unity and peace and love in that congregation what a blessing it must have been for the corinthian church to know that the apostle paul was praying for them That he was being so selfless and specific in his prayers. It's always an encouragement to have someone praying for you. And it's an encouragement to know that someone is praying for you. And the fact that people do pray for us should spur us on to live the way that we know we ought to live. So brothers and sisters, pray for one another. Encourage one another by letting each other know that you're praying for one another. And pray according to this pattern that we see in the Apostle Paul. So he encourages them by praying for them. But he also encourages them by assuring them of fellowship. Look at verse 13. He says, all the saints greet you. Uh, With this brief comment, Paul reminds the Corinthians and us that they are a part of something far bigger than what's going on in Corinth. He's writing from Macedonia. And so the churches of Macedonia undoubtedly send their greetings through the Apostle Paul. They have an interest in the welfare of the Corinthians too. Sometimes, especially when a church is facing turmoil within, believers can forget that their actions and testimonies have implications and impact beyond their local assembly for the cause of Christ. Each church is a part of the larger body of Christ, and so we should care about the welfare of all churches, especially those with whom we have specific connections. In a few days, Lord willing, I will travel to be with churches in Zambia in Africa. And I will, as I often do, always do, when I leave the church here, I will carry greetings from our church to those churches. We've prayed for them. We've prayed for specific people like Conrad Mbewe and Bodhi Balkum, who are there in Zambia. And I will con- convey that to them to, to let them know we have an interest in them. And, and very often, almost without fail, I will have church leaders say, please convey to the church back in Cape Coral our greetings our appreciation, we pray for you. And There's fellowship, there's unity because we have the same God, the same Father, the same Savior. And what happens in one part of the kingdom of God has impact upon all of us in the kingdom of God. It's an encouragement to be in fellowship with believers beyond our own local church. And So Paul encourages the Corinthians by reminding them that greetings come to them from all the saints. And then in verse 14, finally, he encourages them with his benediction. What a benediction. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. A threefold expression of blessing. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. That grace that caused him to turn from the path or leave the, the blessings of heaven that were his as the eternal Son of God forever, And to set them aside, to step into humanity, to become the God-man in order to save us. He brought God's grace to us in salvation by his life, his death, his resurrection. Paul says, let that grace be with you all. He talks about the love of God being with us all. This love that is behind that expression of salvation in grace. The love which was the moving component within God that caused him to send his son into the world to die for believers. That love, he wants to be upon us. He prays, blesses us with the love of God and then the fellowship of the Holy Spirit, the one who lives within us as God, who communicates to us the truth of the grace of Jesus and the love of God, who's given us the word and who teaches us the word. Paul here ends his letter with words that are a triune blessing of our triune God. And he says, let this be upon you all. Prayers, fellowship, benediction. These are all designed by God to encourage us as his people. So as we receive encouragements in these ways, brothers and sisters, we should cherish them. And we should seek then to be conduits of encouragement to one another by praying for, fellowshipping with, extending blessings to each other. Paul ends this letter of 2 Corinthians with the same kind of pastoral love for the church that he's displayed throughout its 13 chapters. He wants them to know the power of God that comes to sinners through Jesus Christ as we trust Christ Jesus as Lord so that in our human weakness the power of the gospel is put on display he wants them to live wholly fully, wholeheartedly for Christ and not compromise with the world with all of the temptations that come against us to deviate from Christ so he warns them he exhorts them he encourages them to keep following Jesus And to let their lives be characterized by ongoing repentance and faith. That's the point of the letter, really. It's actually the point of the whole Bible. It's why God gave us his word written. So that we might know the truth about him. Know the truth about ourselves. Know the truth about what he has done for us in Christ. And in knowing that truth might turn away from how we've lived according to lies. Believe the truth. And entrust ourselves to Jesus as Lord. And if you've not trusted Christ as Lord. Then the word has been given to you. For that very purpose. And God calls you today. He calls you to come to know him savingly. Through Christ. His son. The one who shed his blood for sinners. If you'll trust him. Believe him where you are. As you are. He will save you. Brothers and sisters. Just as God has saved us. By calling us and establishing us in Christ through faith. He keeps us by nurturing that faith in Christ. By empowering us to come back to the scripture. Through the ministry of the Holy Spirit. To see how we are to continually be shaped and formed. More and more into conformity with Christ. Turning from sin where it's discovered to us. Coming with renewed faith in the one who is all sufficient as He who shed his blood, was raised from the dead, ascended into heaven, and rules and reigns right now. So let your hearts and your minds be established in Christ Jesus the Lord. And may his power be made manifest and perfected in your weakness. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for giving us your Son We thank you for your wisdom that is displayed in the salvation that we see in him. We thank you for the provisions for all of our needs that Jesus has made. Help us now to seal to our hearts through the work of your spirit. All that is right and good and true that we have considered today. We pray in Jesus name. Amen.